listening to the Evolution 101 Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome again to Evolution 101. My name is Zachary Moore, and you can email me directly at zach at drzach.net. You can also send feedback through the website at drzach.net, which also contains some links and other resources, including links to the archive page at freethoughtmedia.com, as well as transcripts of these episodes. I received some feedback from David regarding the discussion of human nudity from last week that I thought would be relevant for a further mention. In addition to the explanations which I gave regarding the presence of pubic hair, he mentioned that it also functions to retain the body odors produced by the apocrine glands located in and around our genitals. These odors are relevant to sexual signaling even today. Uh, It's actually been reported that men can tell by sense of smell when women are the most fertile. So an additional selective pressure to retain pubic hair, even as humans lost hair over the rest of our bodies, was to preserve this sex-related scent, since the presence of hair prevents secretions from evaporating as quickly. Uh, Frank wrote in to ask, can human inventions such as the car influence evolution? For example, if enough deer get hit by cars, and there's a tiny percentage that runs away from headlights instead of staring into them, is it possible that someday very few deer would ever be hit by cars? Well, it certainly is possible for humans to influence evolutionary development, since evolution is dependent on the selective pressures of a population's environment, and humans are a part of that environment. This is especially evident when you look at the development of domesticated animals and plants, almost always vastly different from their closest related wild relatives. But domestication is a kind of an accelerated evolutionary adaptation, since intentional breeding patterns are set up in just about every generation. For organisms that are still outside of direct human control, like deer, well, changes would be much longer in development, if at all. In the example that he gave, I doubt that there would be much of a trend away from being hit by cars, since the genetic causes of this behavior are very complex. In addition, you you want to look at the specific behavior in question. If there's enough of an advantage to that behavior to offset any disadvantage, well, then it's unlikely that you would see such a dramatic reduction. Here, the tendency of deer to cross large swaths of territory in search of food and shelter necessitates their crossing of roads. It's conceivable that if there was a large enough disparity in the number of deer hit and killed versus those deer that successfully crossed roads, well, there might be enough environmental pressure to select for the very best crossers, but the deer population is large enough and the percentage killed this way is small enough that I doubt this would happen anytime soon. Jason wrote in to tell us, apparently, there has been some research of homosexuality being potentially created by Neanderthals, who then engaged with Homo erectus in sex and spread this gay disease to modern man. Honestly, I've read conflicted interest on whether or not Neanderthals could have sex with or even breed with Homo erectus, but in the event that this was true, could the changes even last this long or have affected enough people to make it a modern-day problem? 
Fox News recently had an article of the U.S. government arguing how homosexuality is a mental condition, a disease that can be cured someday. Well, first of all, homosexuality is not an infectious disease. You can't catch homosexuality. Homo neanderthalensis was a prehistoric hominid, but it was not a direct ancestor of modern humans. It's possible that some sexual contact between our ancestors and Neanderthals took place, but if it was, it was infrequent enough not to make any impact on our genetics. Certainly, homosexual contact between the two would have had no impact on our genetics whatsoever. I am aware of the classification by the United States Department of Defense citing homosexuality as an example of a mental disorder, but this seems to be just a holdover from decades ago when this was actually the majority view. Whatever their reason for doing so, I can guarantee this has nothing to do with Neanderthal gay sex. Brad asks, Is the wide range of intelligence in the human species similar to what you would find in other higher mammals. I realize that intelligence levels often are reflected in the social aspects of a person. Are some monkeys clearly smarter than others? Do some monkeys live in higher class places? Well, although this is a really interesting question, I don't think that there's much in the way of higher class accommodations in the jungle. But, in recent years, there has been growing support for something called the Machiavellian Intelligence Hypothesis, which suggests that intelligence evolved in our ancestors as a way to better adapt to the complexities of the social order. That is, in order to keep track of social relationships and how to make the most advantage of them, essentially playing politics, higher intelligence was selected for in primates of nearly all species, excluding the non-social species like orangutan, we would expect that the most intelligent members of their population would also be the most socially cunning and would likely be the ones with the most social power. This phenomenon is often seen also in the human species, as is embodied by the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Jordan asks, a friend of mine is wondering about mimics. I explained the basic natural selection process to him, how if certain physical characteristics proved reproductively beneficial, that it would become more frequent, etc. But he's stuck on the what are the odds question, and I'm not sure how to get past that. In his example, there's an island with poisonous snakes on it that are black with yellow stripes. There's also a worm that has developed the same coloration in order to avoid becoming prey. How does this happen? Well, it's really not a what-are-the-odds question. This is a classic natural selection issue. Just think of the selective forces at work here. A classic example of mimicry is the monarch and viceroy butterflies. Okay, The monarch caterpillar feeds on milkweed, and thus the butterfly is bitter tasting. The viceroy doesn't, and thus it tastes quite normal. However, both butterflies appear very similar in terms of coloration and marking. Consider, predators experience the bitter taste of the monarch, remember its coloration, and avoid killing any further monarchs. Since the avoidance is based on that particular visual imagery, any other butterflies that happen to look similar to it, like the viceroy, 
would also be avoided by the predator, since they evoke the same visual imagery. Any members of the viceroy population that happen to look significantly different from the monarch would not evoke this avoidance and would be eaten at the same rate as other non-bitter butterflies. Thus the only viceroys that remain to breed are those that look more like monarchs. Over time, this mimicry was amplified to the point where it is today. This is classic natural selection in action and a phenomenon that is predicted by evolutionary theory. It sounds to me like what you're trying to tell your friend is absolutely correct. He's just not getting it. Okay, and finally, some criticism from Susan. She says, hey... I just thought that I would say that I really thought that I would like this podcast. I believe in evolution and am very well read in evolution. But after listening to quite a few podcasts, I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to delete it. You see, I believe in evolution, but I am also a Christian and couldn't take the bashing every minute in the podcast. I love the information, but I couldn't take the slamming anymore. You see, I find no problem with believing in evolution and believing in God. I know that there are creationists that may be very outspoken with their beliefs, or rather disbelieve in evolution, but to say that everyone that believes in God does not believe in evolution and is uneducated in the area of evolution is a very ignorant statement. Also, the conclusion that was made of the correlation between creationists and intelligent design is not true. I do not believe in intelligent design because you cannot rationalize God, because God is not science. God is a belief, so to try to put God in boundaries of science would not be true. Listening to the podcast did not teach me anything about evolution, but did teach me about how someone who is so smart in one area can be so ignorant and uninformed on another. Take, for example, Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project. He is a Christian, but also believes in evolution. You slam creationists believing that creationism is all wrong, but what you don't mention is that evolution also has things that have been changed and holes that are still present in evolutionary theory. For a well-educated person, you are very narrow-minded. Well, Susan, I'm sorry if you feel that I've been bashing you, but in fact I have never said that, quote, everyone that believes in God does not believe in evolution. In fact, I've tried to make it very clear that there are many Christians that do. Ken Miller, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, is a Catholic and an evolutionary biologist who has written the excellent book, Finding Darwin's God, which is an excellent resource for anyone seeking to learn more about evolution, and especially for those who want to resolve evolution and the Christian faith. If you didn't learn anything about evolution from this podcast, you might want to check out this book written by a fellow Christian who believes that creationism is wrong and evolutionary theory is the only scientific explanation. All right, well, today I want to get back to one of the questions that was posed on the old site when this podcast first started. Grelnixar asked, what exactly are information? in a pure biological sense. When speaking to creationists, I often encounter analogies to digital information, which always require a designer or designers, but how accurate are these analogies? Can you give an example of observed positive genetic information increase? Well, this is an excellent question, uh, and it's one that I've been 
wanting to answer for quite a long time, and it's getting at one of the common objections to evolutionary theory, which goes something like this. For evolution to take place, the genome of a species must become more complex. An increase in complexity requires an increase in information, and according to information theory, random mutations cannot increase information. Therefore, evolutionary theory cannot be true. This particular objection is frequently made by those who are advocates of intelligent design, and particularly one William Dembski, who considers himself one of the frontline experts of information theory as it relates to evolution. Anytime you see one of these objections which refer to information, genetic or not, especially in reference to this information, either increasing or decreasing, there's a good bit of underlying assumption behind it, which is usually unknown to the objector. This underlying assumption is that information theory directly interacts with evolutionary theory. Well, the short answer is that information theory is relevant to evolutionary theory, but not in the way that is intended by the objection. Unfortunately, that's really the best answer that my expertise can provide, because information theory is well beyond my training and understanding. To get to the long answer, I've asked a good friend of mine and mathematical expert to explain what information theory is in the first place and how it relates to evolution. I'll yield the floor to him. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to start off by thanking Dr. Zach for inviting me to be on his great podcast. I've definitely learned a lot myself from listening to it. My name is Ryan Cunningham, and I'm a graduate computer science student at the University of Central Florida. Uh, the cliché of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none definitely applies to me. I've studied computer science theory, machine learning, bioinformatics, computer security. All of these fields seem to be kind of unrelated, but there is definitely a common theme underlying all of them, and that theme is information theory. Dr. Zach wanted me to come on and answer the question, what is information theory? It is a very diverse field with many subfields, and some of these subfields are totally unrelated. There's quantum information theory, semiotic information theory, algorithmic information theory. The list goes on and on and on. I will discuss the classical version of information theory because it is the most fundamental and it seems to me to be the most relevant to discussions about evolution. Classical information theory deals with communication systems and encoding schemes. Its statistics are always computed for a source, that is the source of information, and it treats it like a random source. So to motivate the rest of this discussion, let's imagine a source. Say, imagine there's a light flashing red over and over and over again. After a period of time, instead of flashing red, it flashes green. The event of the light flashing green tells you something more about the light flashing. It surprises you. Information theory tries to quantify your surprisal and the amount of information that you learn. So the first quantity we will discuss is called surprisal. 
and it tries to quantify the amount of information that you gain from one event occurring. And it is related to the logarithm of the probability. Now, I won't go into the specific formulas for these things, but it is important that you know the parameters for the equations. The second quantity that I'm going to discuss is entropy. The entropy is simply the average self-information for a random event. It's a sort of measure of redundancy. It also measures the average surprisal. So in our flashing light experiment, if, it, if the light flashed red a lot of times, on average we would not be very surprised by the outcome. So the entropy would actually be very low. On the other hand, if our source was uh, flipping a coin, on average, we would get one bit of information from that source. This is a fundamental theorem in information theory that says the entropy is highest for a purely random event, for an even distribution, an even probability distribution. That is to say, on average, we are the most uncertain about these events, and therefore, from the outcome, we learn the most information. This is an important thing in information theory. People get confused by the fact that our uncertainty is, in some sense, the same equation as the equation for information. This confusion can be resolved by just keeping in mind that before you know the outcome of the event, you're very uncertain, and your uncertainty is resolved into information once you know the outcome. So let's review these two concepts. The first was self-information, or surprisal, which quantifies how surprised you are by the outcome of a single random event. Then there was entropy, which quantifies how surprised on average we are, and therefore how much information we get on average knowing the outcome of a random event. So now that I've given you the, the basic outline of classical information theory, let's take a look at some of the common claims creationists make regarding information theory and its relation to evolution. The first claim is that information theory tells us mutations cannot add information to a genome. Classical information theory, like all other formulations of information theory, relies on context to define what information means. In the case of classical information theory, we have to know all possible outcomes and the underlying probability of getting those outcomes in order to estimate entropy or information. Without knowing the underlying probability distribution that these people are assigning to these events, we really can't assess the validity of this claim because it's essentially meaningless. But if we assume that they mean classical information theory and the probabilities for a given genome sampled from a population, a mutation in one genome will increase our uncertainty about the contents of the overall population's genomes. By definition, this is an increase in classical information. So they're fundamentally wrong if that's what they mean. A second claim 
is that information is conserved. Supposedly, Dembski proves this in his papers. As a scholar of information theory, I can honestly say reading one of Dembski's papers makes it painfully obvious that the Isaac Newton of information theory has never read even a basic text on the subject of information theory. Information is not conserved. It depends on the underlying probability distribution for a random variable. Are probability distributions conserved? No. Think about it. If I shave the corners off of a dice, I can make more and less probable outcomes. I just created information. A third claim is that information theory tells us evolution can do no better than a random search. And my answer to this is no. <laughs> this is a problem for computer science and machine learning theory, not classical information theory. And Dembski tries to use classical information theory to prove this. He tries to tell us that evolution is a random search algorithm, and this is not true. It is, evolution is not trying to find a perfect optima. It doesn't have a binary chance of success or failure. Also, in his formulation for success in a search, Dembski says what he calls quote-unquote interesting problems, and he's assuming that a creation of a species or a gene is, he says the probability of success is low. But how can a person compute or even estimate the overall probability of the evolution of a species or the origin of the universe? Our sample size of histories is only one, and we simply don't know enough to estimate these numbers. Dembski is basically making an argument from personal incredulity, but he's masking it in mathematics. The final claim that I'm going to discuss is that there is a limit to the information that can be generated in the universe. Anything with more information therefore must be designed. This is patently a silly argument. For example, just think of the information, or surprisal, or unlikelihood, if you will, of all of the outcomes for all of the lotteries in all of the states in the history of the United States. Surely, that string of particular outcomes is much more improbable than the possible outcomes for a particular gene and me. But it happened. We know that it happened. Just because we can assign a low probability to something happening does not mean that it's impossible. We all know that rare events happen every day. Probabilities are always assigned based on certain assumptions, and they always depend on a certain context and they're meaningless outside of that. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on Dr. Zach's podcast and clarify some of these ideas for you. I hope that it helped. If you're curious to know more about information theory, I highly recommend Murray Gelman's book, The Quark and the Jaguar. I look forward to future episodes of this podcast, and I thank you all for listening. Take care. Thank you so much, Ryan, for your informative lecture. I'm sure all my listeners are very appreciative of your contribution this week. All right, well, that's all. Take care.